Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So welcome to Series 3, Episode 6. So today we're joined with Dr Kate Sanarski. So Kate's here with us. She's one of our consultants here at UCLH Lymphoma. Kate has a specialist interest in primary CNS lymphomas, which we're here to talk about. We're going to discuss CNS lymphoma, secondary, primary, causes, clinical trials that's going on in Europe and the US to decide what's the best effective treatment, and how to diagnose it, and how to look after these patients on the wards. We also touched on the role of the neurosurgeon in diagnosing CNS lymphoma. Right, so hi Kate. Yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> thanks, good thanks for coming. Yeah, good. So yeah, we had an overview of lymphoma by Will Townsend, which was very interesting and um, covered the basics of lymphoma. You didn't go into all the hundreds of different types, you just did a basic overview. So today we'd like to focus more on CNS lymphoma, and which is one of your areas of expertise. And I think one of the questions the nurses want to know is why in some patients does it spread to the CNS and, and why others not? And is there any kind of risk factors for that to start with? Yeah, so it's certainly an area of my interest. I think it's fascinating. I've sort of been involved in it for over 10 years. And when I was first involved in looking after patients with brain lymphoma, it was sort of the thing that people didn't want to look after. Okay. And I think that's partly because our therapies were really quite toxic and actually not that effective. But now we have much better therapies. So I always think about CNS lymphoma is the really is the question is, is it primary CNS lymphoma? So it that would be that it is only in the brain. So in that situation, the sort of median age is 60 to 65, and it may even be 70. So if you really did biopsy people, you know, of an older age, the neurosurgeons felt that we had a therapeutic option for such patients. It's maybe 70. And in that situation, we would expect the CT scan or the PET scan to be normal. So there is no evidence of systemic disease. It's only in the brain. In about 10 to 15% of cases, there's involvement of the CSF. So if you were, if it was safe to take uh, to do a lumbar puncture, there would be in about 10 to 15% of patients with primary CNS lymphoma. And as part of our staging, we also, with men of any age, we recommend a testicular ultrasound scan in addition to the PET scan, because again, you want that to be normal, because for it to be primary CNS lymphoma. So I've had a number of patients in their 30s, men who presented with a testicular lump, and a lump in the brain, and that is not primary CNS lymphoma, that's secondary CNS lymphoma. Okay. So secondary CNS lymphoma is different. Secondary CNS lymphoma can affect any age. So anyone who gets diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, you could be in your 20s, 30s. Secondary CNS lymphoma is a lymphoma where there's sort of three different scenarios. It may be, like our patients with testicular diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, they present with systemic disease, so a lump in their testes and a lump in their brain. And in that situation, I've had somebody who was waiting for their brain biopsy in Queen Square, and they didn't need to have a brain biopsy in that situation because they just had their orchidectomy that showed diffuse odd B-cell lymphoma, and the MRI appearances were absolutely characteristic of a brain lymphoma. So that's a, somebody who presents with synchronous 
both systemic and brain lymphoma. You may have somebody who's had RCHOP for diffuse RBC lymphoma systemically and maybe on therapy or in the months after their therapy, they present with a lump in the brain. And it may be that the, all the rest of their systemic disease has gone away. So that's isolated secondary CNS lymphoma. And in that situation, it usually occurs early after starting your RCHOP therapy. That's why we're keen to give people CNS prophylaxis, either by IT methotrexate or high-dose methotrexate or other chemotherapy drugs. We're keen to give it early. So would it be visible on the PET? So in some situations, we do see it on the PET, both in the brain and in those with synchronous systemically, mm -hmm. but it's your MRI that's going to be the most helpful investigation. So often patients come to us, they've had a CT scan first, but the MRI, because of the appearances under sort of diffusion weighting, um, you can see characteristic appearances. And the last one is patients who maybe they are either on therapy or they've had prior therapy mm. and they present with synchronous. So they may have already started their RCHOP or received it previously, and then that's a synchronous relapse. Okay. And, and in secondary CNS lymphoma, we've just finished a, an international um, trial of 76 patients, and we're just analysing that data. But it is different to primary CNS lymphoma, secondary CNS lymphoma. It has different challenges because you have a higher proportion with leptomeningeal disease. So our treatment for primary CNS lymphomas high-dose methotrexate-containing chemotherapy, but we don't use intrathecal. In secondary CNS lymphoma, we do incorporate intrathecal therapy um, because we know there's a higher proportion with leptomeningeal disease. What, how come it's not commonly in, in the CSF in yeah. the majority of patients? So, so primary CNS lymphoma, we don't really understand a lot of you know, where do those lymphocytes come from, mm. partly because the samples when neurosurgeons take them are so small that we don't really have enough understanding really of the pathology of disease it seems to be sort of biologically distinct to diffuse rb cell lymphoma it shares some characteristics to dis testicular diffuse rb cell lymphoma so if you look at the sort of genetic profile mm. it's quite similar to the testicular and so over the last say you've been uh, 10 years you've been looking at this in more depth has the treatment changed a lot do we add in more things and change that now over the yeah. last 10 years? So the first randomised trial ever to complete accrual was only published in 2009. So that really is okay. only 10 years ago. And that was only 79 patients. And that was really looking at high-dose methotrexate versus high-dose methotrexate and cytarabin. And in that randomised study, that was the ILSG20 study. And that basically showed that if you added cytarabin, high-dose RSC, to the methotrexate, your outcome was better. But really, still less than 50% of people were alive, disease-free, at three years. And in that study, everyone was expected to have whole brain radiotherapy, although those over 60 were allowed by physician choice to avoid it in first remission. But many people did have radiotherapy. So since then, we did the ILSG32 study, and there were three different arms in that. There was the methotrexate cytarabin arm, which was considered to be your sort of control arm and then another arm which was arm B that had the addition of rituximab and then the third where you had the addition of rituximab to methotrexate cytarabin and thiotipa. So we had the outcome of that data we first presented it at 
ICML in Lugano in 2015, showing that combination of four drugs was most effective. So that's your matrix combination. And then since then, we have done within the ILSG32 study a second randomization where we looked at consolidation. So patients who'd received those different chemotherapy before, they were randomized between whole brain radiotherapy and a BCNU thiotyper conditioned stem cell transplant, so an autologous stem cell transplant. And really, the data from ILSG32 showed that your outcome was very similar. So an autograft was appeared to be as effective. The sort of cognitive data suggested that an autograft was more conserved your cognitive mm. function. And then since then, the French have just published a study in early 2019 now, they randomized up front between a methotrexate-containing combination and radiotherapy or transplant, and they showed convincingly that your progression-free survival was much better after transplant. It oh, was about really? 87% compared to whole-brain radiotherapy, where, where it was you know, much less than that. But they also showed that their cognitive function, and these were patients all under the age of 60, that anyone who received whole brain radiotherapy, the cognitive function was significantly worse. Mm. And those who'd had an autograft either improved their cognitive function. So that's why we try to collect stem cells in patients after two courses of matrix. And we aim to perform a stem cell transplant after four courses. Do we always do that? So we always consolidate with something yeah. after? We aim to, because the data has always been that if you don't consolidate, if you give high-dose chemotherapy and you don't, the data's already always really suggested that you're, you're more likely to relapse. Okay. So if we can't perform a stem cell transplant, we increasingly are reluctant to offer whole brain radiotherapy if we couldn't offer a transplant because of the risk of, of neurocognitive dysfunction of dementia. Worse in people over the ages of 60, 65. But we also have to be aware that with matrix, we don't really have any data to say, not in a trial setting, that if you don't consolidate, what is your real risk mm. of relapsing? And the one other thing to say is there's always been this question about the role of a neurosurgeon. So we know that the neurosurgeons are really helpful because they help us establish a diagnosis. And we would probably say that none of us would want to offer therapy to anyone without a brain biopsy or a tissue diagnosis because our sort of the toxicity of treatment there's probably a treatment-related mortality of even sort of up to 5%. So it comes with morbidity and a potential mortality. Now, the, the Germans published a big study, and they retrospectively looked at that data and said that if patients had resection of their brain lymphoma, they tended to do better. Now, the problem really for most of us in, in how they've interpreted that data is that we know that patients with a deep brain lesion do worse. So those with a deep brain lesion are less likely to have a surgeon resect it. So we feel that's just a confounding factor. Mm. And really, there's still no evidence that a surgeon really offers therapeutic value because it's really a whole brain disease. And that's why, compared to other brain tumours, if you're going to consider radiotherapy to the brain, you're really offering whole brain radiotherapy mm. to the brain, which after high-dose methotrexate is toxic. From the other talk we did, when we talked about the general presenting symptoms with lymphoma, um, do many patients present in the same way or is it all focal changes and 
I think that's a really important question. I've, you know, we've had a number of patients recently who've had, you know, effective therapy, and then their family may have reported it may be a behavioural change, or classically confusion, it may be seizures. But I think in reality, it depends on where the disease relapses, and it may relapse in a different site to how it was how the patient presented. So patients present often with confusion, seizures. We always encourage our neurosurgeons to do a prompt brain biopsy because we know that steroids can be very effective in reducing the size of the lesion and they may compromise the ability to make a diagnosis. So really, I don't think we need to wait for a week for a neuro-MDT to make a decision if it looks like brain lymphoma. Then a prompt diagnosis is very helpful. We think in the future it may be that advanced MRI imaging, possibly CSF cytokines or cDNA or other less invasive tests may be able to establish a diagnosis. But presently, if we really want to establish a confirmed diagnosis, we do rely on a neurosurgeon. It felt like there was a period before which we didn't see many patients with CNS lymphoma on the wards. That's because she came over. Is that was that literally the reason? <laughs> okay. She brought them all. Three you brought years your caseload with you. I think part of it. I think it's it's also. I would say it it is affected. The the neurosurgeons have been influenced by the fact that we do have therapeutic options for our patients. So when I first spoke to neurosurgeons, say ten years ago. They didn't realize that patients sort of in their late 60s or early 70s, maybe with a performance score of two, that we could offer therapy that would give patients a good quality of life potentially and a prolonged life. Mm -hmm. So I think as we have been able to offer more effective therapies, our neurosurgeons have have been more enthusiastic to biopsy patients. When I first approached European centers, probably is when we were opening ILS-G32, which I imagine is maybe eight years ago or so, approximately. I can't recall when. I remember going to a city with two internationally recognised football teams, but patients went from the neurosurgeon to the clinical oncologist and only received whole brain radiotherapy. And when I spoke at a meeting recently, again, a colleague from another city in Europe which is an attractive city to visit (laughs) and (laughs) is an internationally recognized capital city of a country they say the neurologists look after patients with primary CNS lymphoma so when I ask them how do they manage our more intensive protocols such as high dose methotrexate in combination with other agents with a plan to autograft she acknowledged that patients are referred for whole brain radiotherapy because that's been their experience and they've carried on with that. But I think people are increasingly convinced of the merit of high-dose therapy in an autograft because it appears to offer prolonged disease-free survival, so that's meaningful to patients, but also in terms of quality of life. I know that there are risks of a transplant, you know, in terms of we counsel people for a risk of 3 to 5% of transplant-related mortality, But we also know when we reviewed our outcome data in patients over the age of 65 who had primary CNS lymphoma and had an autograft, and the TRM was just over 3%. So we know with appropriate patient selection that we can autograft patients with BCNU thyroid conditioning. And actually, it may even be certainly as well tolerated as 
beam lean, but maybe even better tolerated. Um, you know, it has less GI side effects. I suppose the challenges on the wards are the of how the patients are when they're first diagnosed and and with the treatments as well. What would you say are the the biggest challenges with this patient group? I think that's really true. I think the difficulty we have is that this is intensive therapy. You know, often patients have a character change or confusion. And to comply with such intensive therapies is arduous for patients. It's challenging for their carers and really challenging for our nursing staff and our doctors, but really in terms of nursing such patients. I remember a junior doctor, one of our SHOs, had said to me that she, she'd seen a patient at the beginning of her attachment who really was mute with a really compromised GCS, and she did question what we were doing. Mm. And this patient is alive a number of years later. And I think the difficulty is, is knowing at diagnosis that treatment would be futile. I think what we can say is the things that are helpful for us are how fit was the patient in the weeks and months before their diagnosis? We know that any type of lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but certainly primary CNS lymphoma could compromise you very quickly within days and weeks. But if someone was previously fit, then I would be keen to consider therapy. I think it's very helpful to speak to patients, family, friends, carers of their wishes, and that people who really have no desire for any further therapy, I have no wish to give it because it's certainly arduous. Um, I think the thing I would say is that it's important for us to assess response. We traditionally do it after two courses of therapy, but I think that we have a low threshold to repeat an MRI or imaging after one course of therapy. And I think if a patient is responding to therapy, that is supportive of us continuing therapy. But if there is no response to therapy, and we can't really assess response from steroids alone. So I think we cannot be ageist about this because there are a lot of people who are older but are biologically fit, who may be compromised at diagnosis. But were previously very well. Who were previously fit. I think it's really helpful to get your history to know how fit was that patient in the weeks and months before. If they've been bed-bound for a number of months, we know that patients who have a delayed diagnosis do have an inferior outcome. So I think it's really with a heavy heart that you start treating such patients. Age and performance score are two important prognostic factors. So older patients do do worse, and people with a poorer performance score do worse. But again, there are people who were included in ILSG32 up to the age of 70 with a performance score of 2, and up to the age of 65 with a performance score of 3. And the performance score is is them a couple months before like the onset of the disease? No, or it's only for trial on, eligibility. On presentation. It is on okay. presentation. Right. But it is acknowledging where is the lymphoma. Yeah. And so somebody who is unable to self-care, that may be because they have a frontal lobe lesion associated with a character change. Hmm. And so they may behave in such a way that they're completely non-compliant, unable to, to care for themselves. How do you consent people for a trial when they're yeah, kind of potentially, you know, incapacitated to some extent or yeah. another, or co- think, at least cognitively impaired? I think that's a really important question in, in brain lymphoma. We know that we don't want to 
to compromise patients having access to clinical trials. Now, we know that it's important that for patients who have capacity, that it's voluntary. But a clinical trial has gone through many different steps. It's gone through many ethical hurdles. And the real question is, will your in a randomized trial, you're really trying to improve outcome. So you're really comparing what you hope will be a better treatment combination to that which is considered the gold standard. Now, of course, we don't know whether the experimental arm is better. If we did know, it wouldn't be ethical to randomize patients in a randomized trial. However, in a patient in primary CNS lymphoma or secondary CNS lymphoma, they may not have capacity. And yet we wouldn't want to deny them the opportunity to have what may be a superior treatment. So we have ensured in our clinical trials that patients who lack capacity have access to be on a clinical trial. But as soon as a patient regains capacity and you hope that they do with effective therapy, then it's very important to ask the patient do they want to continue their therapy and do they want to continue on trial? Yeah. We wouldn't continue therapy against anyone's wishes if they have capacity. I suppose it's good to know then that when they can't make that decision that they would get the best treatment possible until they could make that decision. And I think it's really important. And in some situations, they may not have a carer. They may not have anyone who... And so that's why it's been it's very helpful that, you know, there, there, there's an IMCA, that there can be other nominated people to be supportive and who have a responsibility and act in their best interest in their best interest i think what was very helpful i spoke at a meeting recently in queen square and one of our palliative care consultants was very articulate about offering therapy to patients with neurological conditions who don't have capacity and he talked about you know the important thing of acknowledging that therapy can be onerous and arduous but again, it's not futile. Mm. So certainly we consider therapy if we believe it's of therapeutic potential for a patient. But that's not all patients. So there will be some pro- proportion of patients who've had a very compromised performance score or have severe comorbidities that may not tolerate therapy, that we believe that they're not going to gain from intensive chemotherapy such as high-dose methotrexate if they've got impaired renal function. And I think that we have to remind ourselves what, patients, what patient cohorts are at risk of CNS lymphoma. So the two groups that are rarer, but they do have an increased risk of CNS lymphoma are those with HIV and are either undiagnosed or non-compliant with antiretrovirals, so have a low CD4 count. And that's biologically different. Is that the same with different. any lymphoma, or, or is it kind of particular to CNS lymphoma? So patients with HIV have an increased risk of primary CNS lymphoma, certainly, but non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So they are AIDS-defining illnesses. In Hodgkin's lymphoma, it's not an AIDS-defining illness, but there's about a tenfold increase in Hodgkin's lymphoma. Right. Primary CNS lymphoma in the HIV patients and in the immunosuppressed patients, so maybe they've had a renal transplant or a solid organ transplant, these are biologically different. They're EBV-related, and they certainly in a component of their therapy is to improve their immune reconstitution in the HIV setting by giving antiretrovirals in the solid organ setting, seeing whether we can reduce immunosuppression. Then the question is, 
rituximab, they're EBV positive. And then the question is, how much chemotherapy do they need? And in the HIV setting, we don't give the matrix. We have evidence from both American and French data that methotrexate alone, and we add in rituximab with antiretrovirals, can be effective and curative in this cohort. So methotrexate is just the mainstay sort of drug that manages yes, to permeate I mean, in the renal, that part in the, of the brain? Yeah, so, well, there are other agents that do, mm -hmm. but it seems that in the HIV setting, you don't need to add all the other agents. So agents okay. such as methotrexate, cytarabin, so RSC, thiotipa, iphosphamide, etoposide. So when we give patients with Burkitt's, Arcodox MRIVAC, the agents within Arcodox our IVAC are high-dose methotrexate, high-dose iphosamide, and high-dose cytarabin, and they offer CNS prophylaxis. And I've had two patients with Burkitt's who presented with disease in their brain, mm. as well as widespread, so marrow peritoneal disease. And we've started therapy with our IVAC because that has the CNS-penetrating iphosamide and RSE and then subsequently give them their R-Codox-M. So with the R-Codox-M, you have your sort of R-CHOP-like bit at the beginning that doesn't penetrate the CNS. But day 10, you have your high-dose methotrexate. Mm. And we give it over a short time, so three hours, rather than 24 hours. And that penetrates the CNS can be highly effective. And my two Burkitt patients who presented with disease in their brain and elsewhere, you'd think that would be incurable. But both of those patients are alive a number of years later and in complete remission, and they didn't need a transplant. They only had their Arcodox MRIVAC Burkitt treatment, and they're disease-free. So like, if someone has diffuse large B cell, and they're treated and in remission, and 12 months later they have a CNS relapse, was that essentially the, the disease was lying sort of quiescent the whole time? Is that the idea, or? No, it's true. Yeah. We usually see a CNS relapse earlier. So we okay. usually see it a number of months later, but certainly in testicular, it can occur even a number of years later. So patients with an isolated CNS relapse, as you've described, we presently use methotrexate um, combination chemotherapy. So we tend to give matrix, if they're fit enough, with a name for a BCNU thiotipa autograft. In patients who've got concomitant systemic disease in secondary CNS lymphoma, we tend to use matrix R-ICE alternating because we're trying to treat their systemic disease and their CNS disease. But again, yeah. we aim to autograft. So it's quite a challenge, secondary CNS lymphoma, because it can present in different ways in you know three different scenarios. So it's sort of therapeutically a challenge. Sort of primary CNS lymphoma is about 400 cases a year. And secondary CNS lymphoma is probably more around the 150 to 200 um, patients a year. It may be less as we offer more CNS prophylaxis to try to prevent it. What do you think the next sort of big advancements will be coming up? I think the, the real challenges are relapsed disease. So the reason why we always consider consolidation therapy is we're really trying to avoid relapse. Because really most studies show that your outcome is really a number of months, unless you've not had a transplant before and you can get into you know, some form of response and consolidate with a transplant. But certainly the outcome's poor. We try to look at other agents. So ibrutinib has been used, and that does offer some therapy and some response, but usually short-lived on its own. So we're looking at combination therapy, maybe adding in agents such as lenalidomide. But certainly relapsed 
disease is a challenge. Another challenge is our older patients who aren't fit for matrix. So really the patients over the age of 70, they do worse. And it may be they're just not fit enough usually to have such intensive therapies, but it may be biologically different. And the other real challenges in secondary CNS lymphoma is, again, it is biologically different and trying to find um, either combinations or therapeutic approaches that are good. Are there any immunotherapies being developed? I thought I heard a rumour about that. Yes, so (laughs) there's certainly, there was a promise, um, it was exciting phase one data of, I can't remember whether it's five or seven patients published in blood a couple of years ago, we await the outcome from the phase two data. And the important bit is too is when we're looking at evidence of efficacy, we're thinking about have patients been receiving steroids at the same time? Have they had consolidation whole brain radiotherapy? Mm. And presented at ICML in Lugano last month was also some data using RCHOP after an anti-TNF to break down the blood-brain barrier. So that looks interesting too in trying to get agents that we use in systemic diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, our job, into the brain. So certainly there's still a lot to do.